and if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to Micah chapter 5. We've been looking at Micah 5 and his wonderful description of the day of Messiah's power, the second coming of Christ and all that entails after that. I was thinking recently about Old Testament promises and the large amount of space that's devoted to describing and affirming what we call the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ on earth. It receives a lot of attention. Many, many chapters in the Old Testament are devoted to it. In fact, the millennium probably gets more space in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament than even the cross does. That might seem odd to us because the cross of Jesus is where our salvation is purchased. It's God's great redemptive act, and the cross is the foundation for all of our faith and our confidence. So why so much attention to the millennium in the Old Testament? Well, think about it. For Israel, the reign of Christ, the reign of Messiah, is the wonderful end, the culmination of the promises of God fulfilled. The cross is not the end. It is a necessary and wonderful means to that end. Men must be reconciled to God and sin must be dealt with. But after reconciliation comes glory. And that's really the end. A wrong world made right. Living with Christ forever. The actual experience of a complete salvation. Where these old uh, and decrepit bodies of ours, some of ours are getting more decrepit by the moment, find eternal life and glory and joy and the fullness of all that we're meant to be. Living as we do between the first appearance of Christ and the second appearance, we see things mainly in terms of our spiritual blessings and our, our heavenly rewards, because if we die, we're going right to heaven. But, but the Jew has other hopes as well. He has the desire to see promises fulfilled, promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob long, long ago, promises of Israel's glory under the Messiah. The promises made to Abraham and the great... Abrahamic covenant way back in Genesis Genesis chapter 12 where God says to Abram I will make you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great and you, so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so Israel is a great nation blessed of God with a great name that has yet to happen Israel had a brief time of glory under Solomon, but nothing like the other mighty nations or kingdoms of history. And Israel's glory was very short-lived. The history of Israel is primarily a history of suffering, a, a history of loss, a history of being oppressed. Now today they are strong, but they are still a dependent nation, very dependent. In fact, they're dependent on us for their very survival. They wouldn't be there if we weren't the big giant straddling the oceans with our uh, power. So the promises are really yet to be fulfilled. But when Christ returns, they will be. Now we saw a glimpse of that in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Let me just read that for you again. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that, he may, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, that's Jerusalem, will go forth the law 
even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the promise of God to Abraham, a great nation, is described in Micah chapter 4, verse 7. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. That one brief verse, Isaiah, I mean Micah 4, 7, is so all-encompassing about what it's talking about. He will make them a, the remnant, the remnant's always a believing, the believing part of Israel, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. That's the millennial promise. That's what they're waiting for. So Israel has a special role to play and has something unique to look forward to. Now, I think every Christian personally, uh, of course, has the assurance of heaven and the promise of eternal life. Our destiny is in Christ alone. We don't have a national identity as believers. The Gentiles don't. But even for the Christian, the Gentile Christian, like most of us in this room are, the millennium holds a wonderful promise. Just the idea of a wrong world made right is something to hope for and long for. Even if I know where I'm going and my case is settled because I am in Christ and his salvation has guaranteed me eternal life, I still like to know that when Jesus comes back, everything's going to be fixed. That's a neat thought. I like knowing that this age will give way to one of true peace and perfect justice where righteousness will abound everywhere. And even though I'm not Jewish, I want to see God fulfill his promises to his people because he made those promises and it glorifies him to be faithful to them. So I want to see that. I want to see Israel magnified as a people. And even it's important to know that Christ will set the world right. Just that alone. And we are called upon to live in a way that anticipates that so the people can actually look at us and look at our families and look at the way we conduct ourselves at work and say, there is a, a little glimpse of a future time when righteousness will prevail and love will rule and all that's right will be right. When we speak of the kingdom of God, we mean faithfulness to promises. We mean honesty. We mean kindness and love. We mean mercy and compassion, purity of heart. And our lives are to be all of those things as one of my favorite New Testament words, ambassadors. That's our job. That's what a Christian does. He's an ambassador of a kingdom that is not yet physically present. We come from a different place. Our kingdom is not of this world, as Jesus said, but it will be. It will be. So as ambassadors, we represent the kingdom that is coming. And we are to live in a manner that is vigorously consistent with that. Remember what it was like before you were a Christian? Unless you became a Christian when you were very young. Do you remember what it was like? Imagine what it's like for the unbeliever who, who watches the cheaters of the world prospering and the wicked thriving and the dishonest gaining. The unbeliever might have ideas about right and wrong and he may desire to do right by a kind of a standard that he's developed for himself, but he has to hold on to morality with no 
final justice in view. No justice behind it. No transcendent moral norm above and beyond to make sure that things work out right. That's why corruption is so widespread because people, even if they want to be, believe in right and wrong, if they don't have that sure confidence, they can't hold on to it for very long because in the end there's nothing and everyone else is winning and they're holding on to their morality and losing so slowly they let it slip away. Dishonesty is so common. Why be good and lose? For what? If this life is it, it is reasonable to get as much of it as one can, even if you have to step on some people to get what it offers. When an unbeliever becomes ensnared by this world, living from pleasure to pleasure, he becomes cynical, starts looking for the next experience to fill the emptiness that's there, if only for a moment. He starts to mock the righteous. He might even feel sorry for believers. I remember people when I was young and in college and a new Christian and some of these characters, they just felt sorry for me missing out on all their wicked pleasures. And, um, because wicked pleasures is all they know. That's what life has to offer. And if you listen to them, they think we're missing out on their evil pleasures because we fear God's wrath and we're just all repressed and... Uh, all of that, the usual sort of Hollywood take on what Christians are all, all about, repressed and fearful people that are all straight-laced. You know, they're all, they always look dour and uh, strange and uh, they don't understand. They, they can't understand what it means to live with Christ in your heart. I like goodness. Good is way more fascinating than evil to me. It means much more than evil. And get this, it feels better than evil. No, you can't really. Yeah, it really does. The Christian has a new nature given him by God and he sees the world differently than people that don't have that renewed nature. He sees it differently. He experiences the world differently. And when goodness is a burden, it's the kind of a burden that is a really neat burden to bear because it presses us closer and closer to the Lord. So when, when trials and difficulties come, it just makes us all the more intimate with him. And that makes it even better. And we understand so much more. So for us, looking ahead, justice is coming. And, and that gives everything meaning now. Peace is coming. Truth is coming. Joy is coming. And that all has meaning now because it's coming. For everyone that believes. All of it has meaning now. Virtue is not wasted. It is simply an anticipation of the day when all that should be will be. And that's just a wonderful thing to even think about. Jonathan Edwards used to talk about heaven and the coming of Christ and all that. And his favorite word was sweetness. It's so sweet to even contemplate those things. I hunger for a righteous world. I hunger for a righteous me. Can't wait. Micah chapter 5 keeps our eye on Israel's future and Messiah's glory and his promises to his people that will be fulfilled. The context in verses 4 and 5 is plainly the day of Messiah's power, the end of the age. The first line of verse 5, we talked about last Sunday, um, beautifully concludes, and this one, the Messiah, the one born in Bethlehem, will be our peace. Then there's a natural break there, and Assyria comes.
comes under discussion. Now, one would suspect that we are maybe back in Micah's time since he starts talking about Assyria, but that doesn't seem to be the case. From what follows, it seems clear that we're still discussing Israel under Messiah's direct rule. So Assyria then, which is modern-day Iraq, may indeed oppose Israel at the end, but here it may well stand for all the enemies of Israel. But I think the reason Assyria is mentioned because the it's part of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that the borders of Israel, I'll talk about this more in a minute, will press all the way to the Euphrates River. Did you know the borders of Israel are supposed to be from the Nile to the Euphrates? That's the promised land. It's not that little strip that they've got right now. And they've never had all of that, ever, even under Solomon, not that far. But that's the promise. It's a promise yet unfulfilled, but will be fulfilled in the day of Messiah's power. So the focus of this text is on Israel's defense. Verse 5, it says, When the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod, at its entrances. And he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. So Israel is invaded, trampled, attacked, but men will arise to oppose these enemies. Leaders will arise. Now, verse 5 is kind of interesting. It says, seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. Now, we've got one shepherd here, Mike Shepherd. But, uh, <laughs> but there's going to be... Um, now, is it talking about 15 guys or what? What's he describing here? This is a really interesting poetic form. This is a little Hebrew thing, this seven, eight Thing. It's not so much seven and eight, it's the way the numbers are played. When you, you, you find it often, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see four of this, even five, or six of that, even seven. You, you ever notice that, that little play on words there, the way it talks about? It's just a poetic form. It's a way that Hebrews use to say something that's full or, or complete, a sufficient number. So it may not be 15 men, but a sufficient number of leaders. That's what it's talking about. It might be 100, it might be 200, it might be 1,000. Example, uh, Job chapter 5, verse 19, it says... From six troubles he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. Now, what does that mean? Let's see, there's six troubles he's going to deliver. No, no, seven. No. It means that any number of troubles, that's what it means. And whatever comes, that's just a poetic way of saying that. Even Six troubles he will deliver you. Even seven. In seven, evil will not touch you. It's just a poetic form. Amos chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And then verse 6, it says the exact same thing. Three transgressions and four for Gaza. And chapter 1, verse 9 of Amos, it says that about Tyre. About, in verse 11, it says that about Edom. In verse 13, it says that about Ammon. Now, is it true that all of these nation states are guilty of four, exactly four transgressions? Is that what he's saying? No. It's a way, it's a Hebraic poetic way of saying that they are, they have a full range of sins they're guilty of, they're, that they're just depraved, and they will all be punished for that. So that's the same thing that's going on here. Micah 5.5 5 seems to refer to a sufficient number of leaders of Israel who under the Messiah will defeat her enemies and push the Assyrians right back to their own country, which these Jewish princes will then govern. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword the land of Nimrod at its entrances. So God will bless his people with power and strength to overthrow all their adversaries and he will fight for them himself. 
Zechariah, we've talked about several times, but Zechariah 12, verse 8, same time period in view. It says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the, let's get this. The one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So people that have had back surgery, little weak shriveled up people we're going to be we'll be warriors like David maybe even just ordinary people but not, uh, the idea is that the weakest person on the block the weakest kid the, the, the weakest soldier will be like David in battle because God will just enable them with divine power like Samson you know he's just a man and suddenly he can tear gates out of the ground and throw them over there you know God will fight for Israel and deliver Israel but Israel will not be passive the feeble will be like David, who was a very, very skilled warrior. Now listen, God can do amazing things when he moves. And you know, it, what's so wonderful about living when we live is we actually have all these examples. I, I think God set up the 20th century as a, an example of the end. Because the 20th century is the century he chose to reconstitute the nation of Israel in existence after 1900 years of being scattered across the world. Now, i got to tell you a little story. I, I sit on the pre-ordination committee of, the, of our fellowship of churches that we belong to. That doesn't mean we pre-ordain what's going to happen. It means we, <laughs> we examine people that are going to be ordained for the ministry. So we check out their theology and get their testimony and all that stuff. We spend hours and hours grilling them. I had to go through that process myself once, and now I get to do it to other poor souls. Um, so we're examining ministerial candidates, and, and part of that is to hear their testimony. That's the first thing we do. How they came to Christ and what, how the Lord works in their life and all that. Well, about a year ago, we had a Korean man, an older gentleman. He's um, had a full career and he's kind of bringing that one career to end and he wants to pastor uh, for the rest of his life and shepherd a little Korean congregation down in uh, like Hawthorne area. Really interesting guy. We asked him what his testimony was and, and he told us he was a Korean army intelligence officer and Korea obviously it's really in the news right now they're under constant potential disaster because North Korea even though it's a much weaker country economically has a million man army and it's very modern very up to date very disciplined it's not like those Arabs that I means it's a tough army and the capital, South Korea, is only a few miles from the border of North Korea. So it's well within missile range and everything else. So these vast populations in South Korea are always afraid of if North Korea ever decides to just go nuts and attack them again. So these, Isra the, I mean, these uh, army officers in Korea are constantly trying to study strategies to defend an army that's much larger than theirs. You know, we've got 30,000 troops over there, which is nothing uh, against a force that size. And Korea is largely a Christian country. so. He had heard or been raised with the idea of Christ coming back and, and Israel and how God blessed Israel and will bless, bless Israel. But the, as the Korean intelligence army officer, they had a whole organization study the Israeli wars with Arab countries. Why? The Yom Kippur War, the Six-Day War. Why? Because overwhelming numbers were attacking this tiny little itsy-bitsy country. And in those days, Israel was not a technologically advanced country they had pretty normal weapons and stuff and yet they defeated over and over again these vastly superior armies so they wanted to study how you do that so they spent 
years analyzing in every way troop idea placements and all this stuff, guns and missiles and how you do it and how they train their soldiers and all this stuff. And you know what the conclusion was? He told us this. Our conclusion was, he was not a Christian at the time, it was impossible for Israel to win those battles. That was the official conclusion. It was impossible. And he was raised with sort of a Christian background. Most, most Koreans have a Christian background or Christian. He remembered what the Bible had to say about God doing these things. And he became a believer from that. Because he said, that's a miracle in my lifetime. That God brought back this nation against literally impossible odds. And reconstituted them. Interesting, interesting. Even in setting up end times events, God is doing amazing things. And it's just starting. These are subtle miracles. The big ones are yet to come. How much more will he bless Israel when they turn in faith to Jesus the Messiah and he returns in majestic power to Jerusalem? God will fulfill all the promises to Abraham. Astounding victory will belong to the Jews because in Genesis 15, 18, God promised Abraham that the promised land would extend from the Nile to the Euphrates. And that will happen from Egypt to Iraq. And it would belong to Abraham's seed. And it's a divine promise. And in the millennium, it will happen. It has to happen. That's why every time those poor little people get attacked, they win and their country keeps getting bigger. But that's just a little preview of the big picture. Fascinating time to live. It was our generation that got to see Antichrist in preview through Hitler. I mean, how could anybody hate the Jews so much? How could anybody tromp across the world so much and do so much destruction and be so fanatically committed to the destruction of Israel? Well, we've seen it. So it's not hard for us to believe any of it because we've seen it. Micah 5, verse 7 through 9. The prophet gives us two mental images to help us understand Israel's exaltation under the Messiah. Notice in verse 7, he talks about the remnant of Jacob. And then verse 8, the remnant of Jacob. Now the remnant is what? It's always believing Israel. Those who have accepted the Messiah. That's who we're talking about when we talk about the remnant. Just like in Romans chapter 9 through 11, when we were there. At the end, it will be huge numbers who turn to the Messiah, as we've seen in previous weeks. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So the remnant, believing Israel, in verse 7, says, when the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of men. So the first picture is water. Water. Water is so precious in that part of the world. Well, I guess it's precious everywhere, right? But it symbolizes refreshment and blessing and abundance and all good things. Israel is like uh, Acton in, in a lot of ways. I mean, geographically, uh, as a location, it doesn't rain from May to October in Israel. But they have a heavy dew during those, that time of the year more than we do. And that dew really keeps a lot of the vegetation alive. He says, The remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord. And then when it rains, like showers on vegetation. That's what makes things thrive. 
So nations will be blessed by Israel. Many nations under the Messiah. Good things will flow forth from Christ through his people to the world. That's why in Micah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it describes the nations of the world streaming to the Holy Land for wisdom and understanding because Christ will be there and his people will fulfill their priestly role. In the millennium, the Jews will finally fulfill their chosen purpose, which God told them when he took them out of Egypt and planted them in the Palestine. He said, you are to be priests of God to the whole world. So they will water the world with God's good blessings. Just read Isaiah. It is bursting with description after description after description of that time when the world will come and bring the spoils to Israel and come to Israel for understanding and wisdom and the word of God and everything else. The second picture in Micah 5, 8, and 9 is a lion. Water pictures blessing. The lion pictures power and dominion. Verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which if he passes through, tramples down and tears, and there is none to rescue. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. Now, here's the victory we've been discussing. Israel among the nations will be like a lion in a flock of sheep. Just picture that in your mind, a lion in the middle of a flock of sheep. Not going to be too hard for the lion. How would you describe the lion amongst sheep? Now, it's not like he's chasing after giant gazelle and stuff that might kick him in the head. We're talking about sheep, a lion and sheep. I mean, it's all his, right? It's like when cats grab mice in our house and take them to the bathtub and throw them in the bathtub and then they just go in there and bat them around. It's that, it's that kind of, he wins, you know? The lion wins. What a contrast from Micah chapter 5, verse 1, which we looked at last time where it says, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel in the cheek. It says, right now, your immediate future, the Assyrians are going to come around and bat you around. They're going to strike you. They're going to hit your leaders in the face. But in that day, in the day of Messiah's power, it's going to be the opposite. What Micah's generation could expect for their sins was humiliation and defeat. But that's only for a time because God's promises cannot be revoked, Paul tells us. In the end, all will be as it should be. Even the undeserving are blessed if God will be, wills to be gracious to them and he will be gracious to them. He was gracious to us, was he not? Did we deserve it? No, yet he loves us. And he called us. Well, he called Israel too. And that cannot change ultimately. Paul says in Romans, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He does not promise something and take it back. So every promise will be fulfilled. And there's another point to this too. God may save us in our sin, but he doesn't leave us there. A Christian has this new nature, this new heart we talked about earlier. He progresses in faith and in love. He can't, be, he can't just be his old self or he's not a Christian. Israel under Christ won't be the same either. She will be a purified nation and that's what the last part of the chapter talks about starting in verse 10. God speaks in verse 10. He starts it off almost sounding like, almost sounds like he's leaving them defenseless. He says, it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off your cities the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. Now how is that helping them? Here's how. All along, read the Old Testament, those are the very things they've been trusting in. 
Oh, we've got horses. Oh, we've got chariots. We have alliances with Egypt and other nations. And she is being purified in faith, purified for a singular devotion to the Lord. How will they be defended? Well, he's coming to that. But verse 12 touches on another issue. Verse 12 says that trusting in superstition or the occult will cease as well. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. God's people have no place for fortune tellers or palm readers or Ouija boards or astrology or tarot cards or reading tea leaves or chicken guts or whatever your thing is. There's no room for that. Personally, tea leaves seems a lot pleasanter than chicken guts. I, I never understood the chicken entrail thing, but it must have some value if you're a pagan. But um, that's all anti-faith stuff. It's expressions of unbelief and it just won't be allowed anymore. Won't be allowed. Idols have to go too, verse 13. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherim, that's a favorite goddess of fertility, from among you and destroy your cities. There are certain cities devoted to these gods and they're going to be eliminated. God does not believe in religious pluralism, actually, being God. Idols have to go. They won't be permitted. They won't be worshipped. In that day, he says, only the truth will be permitted, not falsehood. And the cities with significant idolatry will not survive. A thorough cleansing has to happen to the nation. Why? Isn't God being all oppressive here and undemocratic? And yes, he certainly is being undemocratic. But he's not being oppressive. The truth is freedom. Idols and superstition and nonsense are snares for the soul. He's taking away all the snares. You won't be trapped. And in that day, the day of Messiah's power, all the snares will be removed. So people won't stumble in unbelief or in error. So if it's oppression for God to keep me from error, then oppress me, oppress me, please. That's okay. We're not talking about a church and state thing here. God will be the state. So all the big questions will be settled. It won't be one person's opinion versus somebody else's opinion. God's opinion will be the only one that matters because he'll be there. He'll be there. He'll be on earth. Now as far as recalcitrant people go, those who would cling to wickedness and lies and refuse to submit to the divine rule, that won't be permitted. Verse 15, And I will execute vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. It's that simple. In Zechariah it says if, if a nation won't obey God, it won't reign there. I mean, you, they just can't do that. And until they obey, their crops won't grow. You know, that kind of stuff. He started this morning, uh, we started this morning talking about a, a world that's not right. But in, in that day, all the wrongs will be righted. And wrong is whatever's against God, morally, ethically, spiritually. Right is what's right by Him, and the world will be compelled to be right. Well, let's finish this morning with looking at one psalm, Psalm 110. I think a few weeks ago we looked at Psalm 2, which is a very similar. But like Psalm 2, Psalm 110 is a description of the day when Messiah comes in power. Jesus quoted this psalm frequently about himself. The New Testament quotes this psalm, I think, more than any other. 
It starts, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Now, do you remember how Jesus brought this verse up? Do you remember? He asked the Pharisees this question. He says, Now, because they all believe this is about the Messiah, so the Lord God is speaking to the Messiah, and he calls the Messiah Lord. Now, David wrote the psalm. And since the father is always above the younger, the, the older person, the patriarch, is always above in a category sense, above the descendant, David should be greater than the Messiah in that sense. And Jesus said, notice how David calls the Messiah his Lord. And Jesus said, why would David call Messiah the Lord if the Messiah is a descendant and a child of David because it should be the other way around he should call his elder the Lord and he just he just asked the question and just left it there now obviously the reason it's, it is true this way and, and the Messiah is David's Lord is because the Messiah lived long before David lived right that's Micah chapter 5 too his goings forth are from days of eternity the Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem he's an eternal being he's not a man like us but notice, the Lord says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. So the Lord is speaking to the Messiah, the Father to the Son, and it pictures the absolute subjection of all the earth to the rule of Christ. And it speaks of the new hearts of God's people who will stand with him 100% in verse 3. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. Here's how it's supposed to be and will be. God's people standing with him in holy conduct, in obedience. The imagery, dawn, the dew again, refreshment, bright, refreshing, beautiful. And the rest of the psalm expresses wonderfully Christ's rule, not only as a king, but as a priest. William MacDonald, the commentator, says, uncorrupted kingship and spiritual priesthood will give the world an administration such as it has longed for but has never known. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, speaking to Messiah, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's the priest in the Old Testament that Abraham tithed to. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations and fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You just get this picture of a mighty conqueror who has no fear. So he's the priest and the king. And of his kingship, there is no weakness. A harsh rule? Yes, but only to those who are wicked as it should be. So it will be a right world and only those who love what is right will belong there. And they will shine, verse 3 says, in holiness and happiness. And blessed peace will be everywhere because his reign will extend everywhere. And all those bad guys won't be allowed to hide anywhere because he'll get them. Do you want to see that? I want to see that. Join with him and you will. If you let the king be your king, you will see that day. You will see when justice triumphs and peace rules and righteousness prevails because God will dwell among men in power. 
not meekness. And the righteous who are the meek before him will what? What did Jesus promise? They will inherit the earth. Just like he said. What a glorious day that would be. Well, I think we should sing about it. Let's turn to number 241 in our hymnals. <laughs> Stand with me.